electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. The border between what's cyber accessible and what's the real world is blurred now. Like everything is, all our lives are on our phones and sometimes digitally. So if I can get access to your digital identity, I can act as you. Digital fraud is a big business. The same trends that are powering the cloud computing era, global brands, pay-per-use pricing, open source collaboration, are making thieves rich too. Michael Reitblatt is fighting that trend. As co-founder and CEO of Forder, he's trying to keep retailers from getting fooled by credit card scammers. It's a journey that began when he was a teenage hacker through college and startup dreams to working on now his second startup. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox Podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit and subscribe. At the NASDAQ market site, I talked to Wright Blatt about the state of organized crime online and what innovators can do about it. Here's Michael Wright Blatt. We're helping retailers prevent online fraud, mostly stolen credit cards, kind of dealing with people that are trying to buy with stolen credit cards, but a lot of others, and I'm sure we'll get into that later. Traditionally, fraudsters had to kind of do it themselves. They had to steal the cards somehow. They had to create... Uh, stolen identity, to get all the information about these cards, do the work, right? actually accessing the website and writing all the information there, ship it to a place where they can pick it up, and then sell it, because right, they're not in it for the product, they're in it for the money. But now they've gotten organized. It's organized digital now crime. they're getting organized, <laughs> they're getting more sophisticated, and they're, they're starting to trade with each other. Right? Actually, the dark economy is one of the most efficient ones if you look at kind of, if you want to see how free market work, go there. Mm. And one of the contributors to that was all the cryptocurrencies, mm. right? Fraudsters, they don't accept check or credit, <laughs> right? So they, they didn't have a lot of ways of trading with each other online, right? You can't trust the other guy. Uh -huh. With Bitcoins or Monero, probably more kind of better one for them because of the anonymity factor, they can trade. So now they can specialize. One organization can say, we will be attacking retailers or companies with a lot of personal information, like Equifax, right? We're going to steal this data and then we're going to sell it to someone else to use it. Mm -hmm. So we're specializing in stealing. Someone else will say, well, I'll collect a lot of data and I'll create tools to, to build synthetic identities or real identities with all the pieces of information that are mine. Mm -hmm. So they're creating the tool. Someone else will say, well, I want to create offer you infrastructure you can access as a fraudster, right? I'll give you servers anywhere you want for $2 an hour, right? There's cybercrime as a service now. Mm. I didn't make it up, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's there. And so they will get access to all of these servers and they'll be able to kind of lease it to you. How did you end up on the good side of this? Well, I started um, my kind of professional career, well, a little before the Army when I was still in high school, kind of the first 
tech bubble. Mm -hmm. And then I joined the army, the Israeli army. I, I lived in Israel for a long time. I joined the Israeli, what later became the Israeli Cyber Command. Go back to high school for a minute. Okay. Because a lot of kids right. who end up well-versed in technology, they go through a gray period. Like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, you know, they were doing stuff with phones that maybe they shouldn't have been before right. they came out uh, w with the, the Apple computer. Mm -hmm. um, what was your, what were you doing with technology when you What's first got a hold of it? What's the statue of limitation? <laughs> um, I mean, you experiment with the internet, right? Uh -huh. The internet was very, in a very, very different space at the time, right? As a kid, you can say, oh, well, this is easy. I'll go and take a look. Most of what you're doing, it's just a game, right? You're trying to find a weakness somewhere, get access, do something funny, and then email them and say, look, you have a problem here, go fix it. Because uh, it, like, you're 14, you don't really care. Mm -hmm. Some people, unfortunately, did nasty stuff, but mostly it was, and then you go and brag about it on the BBS or like IRC channels oh, that were at the time. Where were you growing up? So I was growing up actually close to Jerusalem in Israel. Mm -hmm. I was born in Russia. So we, and then the family moved when the Soviet Union started collapsing and the borders were open, we moved to, to Israel. We moved to Israel, I was living with the, my family that still lives there next to Jerusalem. And I went to high school in Jerusalem where I actually met one of my co-founders here. Hmm. So we go way back. Uh, tech CEOs of Russian origin are heavily overrepresented on the Fort Knox podcast. Okay. Vlad Shmunis, um, uh, I, I could go back. Mm -hmm. You're like number four or five, so that's, okay. that's interesting. Um, the Citrix CEO. Right. Uh, I could go on and on. Yeah. Um, so, what was it about your household growing up? I don't know. Was was the whole family into technology? Yeah, was it just much. yeah? Well, different well, technology had a different meaning. Uh, right. I, I kind of like the Douglas Adams interpretation of it. Technology is everything that was developed after you were 18. <laughs> so right, it, it, it means different things to different people. And right, so my dad's a PhD in physics and he was working in the university and my mom was working in computers as well. And I remember as a what, 10 year old, 11 year old, I was going you know, once a week or so after school, I would go to my dad's lab. They were using computers. I mean, the giant ones with the, well, in Russia, punch they still have the punch cards. And, yeah. <laughs> in Israel, they already had like 286 or whatever that was, mm -hmm. to, to run calculations. I got to play like Prince of Persia for a while, and then I got to, oh, well, maybe we can do this. So I was kind of learning some really basic, well, one of them was named basic, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the programming languages. It didn't do much, but it was kind of a riddle. It was, hey, what can I make this thing do? And then mandatory military service? Yep. So the service in Israel is mandatory for, for a lot of people. The program I did, which was for people that are, were kind of tech-verse, and they were working in the industry in tech positions before the Army. So the Army didn't have to train them in what it does think in computer science or software in general. They had to just adapt them to what the Army needed. Yeah. Uh, so what kind of later became the Military Cyber Command. Um, now it's kind of a massive unit. At the time, we were a couple of guys. So what kind of stuff were you working on? <laughs> I didn't say what were you working on. I said what kind of stuff were you working on. I'm pretty sure everything you can imagine we we were experimenting with, right? It was it's, it was still new, right? I would even say that it's still new now, right? I think going forward, maybe ten years from now, maybe twenty years from now, your cyber commands will be 
the, mo the most important, if not the only important thing of the military. Right, and I think because the US started the cyber because everything runs on tech, right? If I can get drones, access, they'll be yeah. Drones, they're already. I would even say are easy, right? What happens when I get access to your infrastructure? I don't need to fly anything. I shut down the your water supply or the power, power grid, grid or all the hospital system. Like, there's so much damage you can do in remote. There's so much information you can extract. Yeah, Iran learned that, right? Stuxnet. That that was not even in remote, right? It was kind of a combination <laughs> right. of. USB uh, of human. There was this cool story about, by the way, Russian intelligence. They didn't wanted to get access to a specific base, which was off the grid. So what they did, they took a bunch of flash drives with kind of a malware on it, and replaced all the flash drives that were sold in like computer hardware stores in like five miles radius, assuming that someone will eventually buy one of these and break protocol and insert it into a computer. So here you go. You need to be creative, but the border between what's cyber accessible and what's the real world is blurred now. Like everything is, all our lives are on our phones and sometimes digitally. So if I can get access to your digital identity, I can act as you. So we painted a bleak picture. How does Fortis technology help? I mean, it, when, when organized digital crime is so organized, you got responsibilities broken down, you got the people stealing credit cards, you got the people stealing identities, you got the people offering services in the cloud for them to be able to execute yeah. attacks. How do you stop that? Well, you reverse the asymmetry of, of warfare, right? We still, like, it, we still think in Fortis as a company sometimes as a military organization, right? How do you, there is, Retailers, they're all dispersed. They don't talk to each other. They are heavily under-resourced in the right kind of type of people you need to hire for this. Right? If you want, if you need a lot of data scientists to build a really interesting model for fraud prevention, and you're a great data science graduate out of Stanford, where are you going to go? Google, Facebook, or one of the big tech companies will pay you a lot of money, or a retailer that can't afford to. They pay you, you need to move somewhere. It's really hard for them to hire the right talent, even the very big ones. Mm -hmm. And if you're a fraudster, you have one big thing going after. Yet you need to find one flaw with one retailer and you're in business. And the thing is, a lot of retailers are not tech savvy, right? As an organization. I remember I was actually had a meeting with Amazon maybe a couple of years back. And I made the mistake of calling them the largest online retailer. And they got genuinely offended. They looked at me and said, no, we're a tech company that happens to sell stuff. <laughs> now it's more visible, right? They're doing so many more things. This was before kind of AWS was this big and so mm -hmm. on. And if you have a tech company versus a retailer that's not a tech company, right? They're a retailer. They're doing really great stuff, just not in tech. Mm -hmm. It's really hard for them to be so tech, so in front of tech and be tech savvy. So you have a really high tech kind of skilled fraudsters, they need to find one flaw with one retailer. It's, it's going to happen all the time. And the, worse than that, the moment they find something wrong with one retailer, it's pretty probable that it's the, the same thing will work on another retailer. Mm. So they'll attack one retailer, kind of make some money out of that, they'll get blocked, they'll move somewhere else, they get blocked, they move somewhere else. There's no learnings between retailers. And what some people may not know is whenever fraud, credit card fraud happens online, the liability is with the retailer, right. not with the banks. Right? As consumers, we're all protected. You call the bank, you get the new card, you get your money back. You'll be asked a couple of questions, but that's usually safe. And 
if it happens in the store, the banks take the liability, chip cards kind of solved a lot of that problem. But ever since the chip card, all the fraudsters um, annoyingly don't retire. They just move somewhere else. And they all moved online. That was the next kind of easiest place for them. And as online grows, regardless, right, it's just digital trade, it makes more retailers for them to attack, right, for fraudsters, more different ways for them to abuse things that retailers are doing for their good customers, right? 99% of consumers are good, maybe probably more than 99%. So retailers are trying to optimize for what's the best thing for the, these consumers, right? I want to give them everyone free shipping. I want to give everyone free returns. I want to give everyone just click twice and you'll get it. Mm -hmm. Everything very, very easy. Next day, air shipment available and whatever. If you're a fraudster, you can abuse all of these things, right? Across, How are they abusing that? Well, which one do you want me to explain? <laughs> Any like free shipping or free returns? Well, well, free is not necessarily an interesting thing for the fraudster, but fast is. What happens if I log in, I ask for a digital product or a next day or shipment? I don't pay for it, so I don't care. You will ship it, and before you realize that it was fraud, I already have the product and I go away. Hmm. On the return side, what happens when I buy online, and this is kind of blurry between hardcore criminals that we both identify that and people that just abuse the trust that retailers give them, right? Mm -hmm. Free returns are usually made for people. You bought the wrong side jacket, you want to replace it. Mm -hmm. you, don't want, you don't know what color looks good at you, you buy a couple, you send it back. Yeah. But some people will say, I'll go online, I'll order a bunch of products, and I'll wear them for a month, and then I'll return them. And I'll go online again, and I order more. Like, I'm technically within the policy, and I can do it between different retailers, and that way I have a full wardrobe and I'm not paying for anything. And that's not what it was intended for, right? If this abuse continues, retailers will just have to pull back. If you're looking at the reports, right, they're not, a lot of them are not doing well financially, and some of the problem with online is actually the return cost. Hmm. People are abusing this. So how do you help them with that? So what we're really good at is actually identifying that you are the same person they already know. Okay. Or we already know, right? A lot of the problems are coming to retailers are coming from people that are first-time buyers, right? And you want to offer them the best experience, or you want to attract them, you want to make sure that you kind of get a new customer, but at the same time, you don't want to suffer the financial losses from them abusing you. And when we can say, hey, this person, we know them, we can trust them, they've been shopping on our network for a long time, or even if they, not a long time, but for, for whatever reason, for to trust them, you can trust them. The way our whole system works is we will review all online interactions, not even like transaction is still the majority of what we do, but it's way broader than this. So we'll review all the online interactions and we'll give you, the retailer, a real-time yes-no answer. Like approve or decline, is it good or is it bad? And if it's, we said it's good, but it turns out to be bad, that's on us. Hmm. So we immediately shift the whole problem from the retailer to us. Okay. That's one. So you're betting on yourselves. We're definitely betting on ourselves. We, we can trust ourselves. And more than that, it makes the retailers make better decisions as well. Because when we started and we were just saying, hey, this is a good transaction, we'd get a call from a retailer saying, look, I know you said it's good, but I had bad experience from people, let's say, coming from an IP in Indonesia. You can't just wipe out the whole, the whole country. But <laughs> sometimes when you're not as, like, you, you don't have the big numbers, you, you don't have the skills to look at this, you don't know. So it's easy to say Indonesia's bad, everyone's buying over $5,000 for the first time, it's bad, like whatever the correlation is. And we wanted to make sure that they have confidence to just ship it. And then they say, oh, 
I actually make 30% of my transactions in Southeast Asia. Like, it's a big business opportunity, right? Think of the kind of the aspect of global financial inclusions. A lot of people in all the countries can't buy online because American retailers won't sell it to them because they had bad experience with fraud because there are fraudsters in some countries. And it, coming back to our model, right? So we're reviewing all the transactions. We're giving real-time answers. We have way better tech, and we can, I can talk for hours about why and what are we actually doing. But the way we're breaking the asymmetry and actually turning it the other way, we're combining all the data we're getting from all of our customers. Okay. And currently we're reviewing over $40 billion worth of transactions online. So if we were a merchant, we were the second largest only after Amazon. Right? So if you're a fraudster and you're attacking one of our customers, and let's say you're super sophisticated and you passed all of the tech technology that we developed to catch you, now we learn, the system learns, hey, there's a new way fraudsters can defraud us. And the moment it detects it, all of our other customers are kind of immunized from that MO. Okay. So fraudster, you can't monetize on the same development over and over again. You know, it may work once, but then you're done. So it reduces the incentive for you as a fraudster to invest in developing new fraud technologies. Why did you start a company yourself mm -hmm. instead of just developing inside an existing big company and making a lot of money that way? So we, I was working at a kind of a pioneer in this space, another Israeli company called Fraud Sciences. So I was head of product and my two co-founders that started Forder with me were kind of running ops and the analytical automation of things. And Fraud Sciences was acquired by PayPal. That's pretty good. It depends on the angle. <laughs> I, I, I actually remember that day really, really well from like, I was in the university and I started getting texts, so like, okay, you have what to show up. You're in college, all right, what year is it? Uh, it's 2008. 2008. Uh, so college. Financial crisis? Different, no, so it was January. So it January? was like okay. right before. It took me seven years to finish my BA in like, economics and history, so it's not, I wasn't a good college kid. <laughs> I was, but I, I was there just remembering because right, I was leading product. We had a product that's working. We were ramping it up. We just proved that we're better than PayPal. Let's, let's kill it, right? And then they decide to sell the company, which I completely get like retrospect. I'm not sure that the path we were going would have been successful and the financial crisis after that will definitely make things harder. So it was great from that perspective. But then you walk into, with all of our, the great ideas we had, into a really big company, right? right. PayPal's a massive, they probably were like 15 or 13,000 people. So, you're, so then are, are you done with school and walking into PayPal as? Yeah, but the sc you, school was never, like, I was working full time clearly, all of this. because it was taking you seven years. Seven years, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but it took me seven years because I was a bad student, not because like, <laughs> I actually finished like 25% of my degree in the first semester and then 75% in the next six and a half years until they basically threatened to kick me out. I'm, I'm not built for, for kind of college <laughs> life. But, uh, but I'm built, like, it's easier for me to go try to do something. Worst case it fails, you do something else, right? Mm -hmm. Unless it doesn't, it kills you, you're, you're good. And it, working within PayPal, it felt like someone slammed the brakes on everything, right? We were there, PayPal was doing a lot of manual review of transactions. I'm talking 2008, mm -hmm. massive kind of call centers of reviewing, like think of PayPal volume, right? In fraud sciences, we would look at a case and say, that's one in a million that's not interesting. In PayPal at the time, once a million, once in, one in a million is one, once an hour, once every two hours. Like it's a different story there. 
to massive scales, and we, we had a couple of ideas of, hey, we can help you fix this. So the first thing they do, well, that's a good idea. We'll get back to you about this. We'll set up a task force. <laughs> then a month later, you're on that task force. Yeah, can I go do this or anything? We'll define the goals of the task force. We'll write the plan for the task force. Oh, come on. Right? So it's, that I'm sounds not, very familiar. I'm not very a process-oriented person. It's easier for me to prove me wrong or someone else wrong. Right? That's maybe things I enjoy more than um, kind of really building stuff in order. But you had that exit, 2008. So I wasn't the founder, right? I was, we were working in that company. You were the head we had, of product. Yeah, we had key positions in that. Okay. We understood how it works. We were on the founders, and the founders did a really great job of like, kind of having the right framework of what you should do, right? Basically taking the concept and maybe methodology of how the Israeli intelligence works, of how do, ident do you identify bad or malicious intent when you don't have all the facts. But did you have a piece of the company? I had a small piece of the a company. A small piece yeah. of the company. So you're not rich when not PayPal rich, buys them out. But I'm not, like, it's, the money is not the right kind of But you're motivator. right. You're not rich, but you're right. Yes. You know you're onto yes. something. Yes. That's, that's more important, at least to me. Okay. And, and so we knew, like, look, we, we have the tools. We know how to solve it. Technology caught up in terms of, like, how quickly can you process data in real time? Or, like, how much data can you process in real time? How you can deliver, like, SaaS became... Uh, a thing, Software AWS became, service, like, right. yeah, AWS came around, right, Amazon Web Services and cloud and everything else. So the technology caught up with where we should have, like if we had everything in 2008, maybe they wouldn't have sold, right? There, there was, and also e-commerce was in a different position, right? It was way bigger, people were, like, cared more about this. I think if you would have talked to, like, Macy's in 2008, they would say, well, the store over here makes more money than all of our dot-com, we don't really care. It's not the situation anymore. Right. And also, online fraud grew. They got organized. Way. Yeah. And so we started the company. We decided to start a company in 2013. Okay, that's a long time. What's happening in between? So we worked for PayPal. My co-founders actually moved to San Jose to build PayPal's risk, kind of all the systems that they have right now. I've done some stuff in mobile payments. Been doing a lot of other stuff. Uh, decided to come back together and say, the opportunity still exists, it's just bigger. We're way better equipped to build it. And we kind of know that it worked in the past, right? We just need to tweak on it and improve on it and decide on a, maybe a better, bolder, bigger strategy, which is easier, right, when you saw that working before. Mm -hmm. And so we knew what we want to do, right? Really creating a fraud-free environment for retailers, right? When it was almost surprising to us how little the internet the kind of buying experience has changed since 2008 to 2013. I was trying to buy a new iPhone. Right. Go on, still living in Israel, using my Israeli credit card. I go on apple.com to the store. I got declined. Takes me a couple of minutes to figure out that they were matching my zip code, which coincidentally, the, the zip code system in Israel is similar to the US one, just a very different meaning, <laughs> and to my card and running a system that's called AVS, or Adverse Verification System, which doesn't work in Israel. Like, this whole thing, Apple was trying to outsmart the fraudsters, they were trying to outsmart the system, and ending up declining me. So I had to find a fake address in Washington State to go with my Israeli zip code, <laughs> and then rewrap, like, it, it took an effort, but I know how the system works. Wow. Think of how many people just say, well, I tried, didn't work, I'll go away. We, always talk about how much damage fraud causes, right? There's like $4 billion that U.S. retailers lose to online fraud every year. 
but no one talks about the 20 or 30 or different metrics, $40 billion of goods sales that never take place because the retailers are conservative. Mm. And they're too conservative because right, they can't manage the risk properly. One bad transaction is way more money for them because they don't have this repeat buy. A lot of them don't have the repeat purchase effect like Amazon does. So we thought, how can we create a fraud-free environment? We can't eliminate fraud, right? They will always be there. But we need to shift the liability over from the retailers to make sure they're not as conservative, to make sure they're optimizing for user experience. Mm. Right? Even in PayPal, we had this debate of, we want to do this, but then the risk people say, well, that's risky. We'll lose a lot of money. Say, so we don't do this. But whatever this is, is good for how consumers use it. Mm -hmm. It will increase adoption. So you have this kind of constant struggle. And we say, we don't want to have retailers in that debate. They're not equipped. They don't have all the facts. They don't have all the data. And their economics is not the same. For us, if we create a system that works with everyone, right, if all the retailers will be our customers, and they should be our customers because it's a better model for all of them. Right, the more merchants working with us, the more transactions we're seeing, the better we can manage risk and detect fraud. And now, right, we uh, kind of before we mentioned, I mentioned to you, we work with some of the kind of leaders in every re kind of online retail category. We're processing over 40 billions of dollars, so we're seeing a lot of people. So we're big companies. A lot of movements, yeah. Retailers. The Fortune 100s. Hardware stores. Yeah. Travel. Travel sites. and cosmetics and like apparel and every, everything, really everything, digital goods and uh, gift cards and bitcoins and like whatever. But they don't want you to say their names. Some of them don't want to be kind of associated necessarily with the white fraud. I'm not, I'm, I don't run their marketing, I don't know. Yeah, but you know why. Come on, why do you think? Why, why are they? I, I think when you're trying to simplify your message and then there's a story that talks about online fraud and mentions your name, people don't remember necessarily that you were mentioned in the concept that you're doing a good job to prevent fraud. <laughs> they remember there was fraud and then there was this company. Right. It's, it's just bad for their, or some of them think that it's bad. I actually think they should do more of this because it says, hey, we're ahead of the curve. We're making sure we're optimizing for our customers or our consumers' experience. And we're, tending, we're willing to do more kind of a bolder things on to deal with fraud and we're helping move fraud away, right? It's, it's like it's, the preparation H effect, right? I think I heard once that Preparation H, the, mm -hmm. the anti-hemorrhoid ointment, was one right. of the most shoplifted items because people uh -huh. just didn't want to be seen buying it, right? <laughs> so they, so, That's so, an interesting point. So, you know, I, I guess these retailers just don't mm -hmm. want their name associated with anti-fraud because people yeah. will think hemorrhoids. So one of the <laughs> interesting scams, like money scams, and maybe 20 years ago, was there was an online site. You'll go there, get really great deals. You'll buy something, they'll charge you for your, from your credit card, and then you'll get an email two days later, sorry, the item was actually out of stock, we'll refund you. And then you'll get a check in the mail of the full refund, the problem is it was coming from, I don't know, some nasty porn site. So you can cash it in, and it'll, but people are like, eh, I'm not sure I want to be seen with this. So <laughs> they made a lot of money doing that. Uh, fraudsters are creative, right? And, and you need to find a better way to deal with them at scale. And I think we can use scale, right? To bring all the retailers together. That's bigger than fraudsters, right? We have more like, as a community or the network or as a, depend, like, you can call it by different names. We can create this trusted network that if you operate within it, we're all making sure the community is safe and, and transparent and people can get all of these good experiences. 
And if you're trying to defraud it or abuse it, then you're out. Yeah. So where does this go? Do you go public? Is there, is there a price where once again you say, ah, well, maybe that is a good price, maybe we should sell? Prices is always the bad discussion, right? What are we trying to achieve? We're trying to make sure we're creating fraud-free environment, right? We were in this state once. Let's try to see how big this can be. And as we just discussed, right, it becomes better the bigger it is. And it becomes better when it's independent. Right? When we can work with all the cards and all the geographies and all the types of retailers, every one of the members in this community that we're creating is benefiting from everyone else. So let's make sure we're serving as many retailers as we can. It doesn't public. Okay, but I, I had an interesting. <laughs> I, actually, I actually had an interesting conversation maybe three and a half years with Doug Leone from Sequoia. Right, Sequoia was the first fund to back us. Right, we right. were we were in one of my co-founders' garage. We so even a, if you're not thinking about price, they are. But that's their problem. <laughs> right. So I had a conversation with him and about like going public, and it's a funding event. Right, you do it if it makes sense. You do it if. You want to like want to get a lot of these big uh, publicity uh, benefits that come from going public on Nasdaq, right? Mm -hmm. If we if it's made makes sense, you go public. If it doesn't make sense, you raise more private money. Or best of all, you just become profitable and you run it and control your own fate, right? It's comp a lot of startups are very very focused on what's my next funding event, how do I announce it, do I raise more money, and so on. But that's if you raise money that you don't win. Just raise some money. Hmm. Now, yeah, now you actually have to work harder to make sure you use that money for a good purpose. Same goes for going public. If you, the moment you go public, the, what happens the next day? Right, it's like your birthday. Yeah, you can celebrate, but then just back to whatever you were doing before. Why are so many security companies such bad public market stocks? Not sure I can comment. First, because <laughs> we're not a really a security company, and second, because I'm not a Trader, like yeah, I, I mean, it, it just seems odd to me. Although that I think like Alto has been doing pretty good. They, they have. Um, I'm not saying all of them. Yeah. But a, a lot of them, you know, mm -hmm. if you look at the stock chart of a FireEye, or mm -hmm. you know, certainly Symantec had its, you know, the desktop mm -hmm. PC-based era. Maybe that has something to do with it. But there are so many concerns around mm -hmm. fraud and around mm -hmm. abuse. You would think that more of these companies would have. You know, these so I think. And I'm speculating here, right? Fraud is, or in, in cyber security in general, is a very fast shifting problem. Hmm. If you are, have the perfect, if we have the perfect system today, and we don't invest in it to make sure it's the perfect or the best system tomorrow, it will start degrading, and then we won't be relevant. And if you look at the startup scene in security, there was a lot of them. A lot of people with really creative ideas of, hey, let's do this to solve this problem. I think a lot of the security infrastructure is very fragmented. So people are sol serving, solving kind of one small problem. Then there's 100 of them, and you need all of them to make it work. So even if you're a public company, you're, you're, so you've, you've achieved scale from a revenue perspective, from a customer perspective, but you're not necessarily solving all the security problems. I haven't seen any cyber solution that says, oh, I can trust just this. Mm. I think in our space, what we're trying to create, right? When we started, we started as a stolen credit card fraud prevention solution. And we're expanding it now to a full platform that says any type of fraud, fraudulent interaction, whether or fraud or abuse, right? Sometimes fraud is associated to hardcore criminals and abuse is something 
college kids do. I don't know, right? <laughs> it, it, it depends on the definition. That consumers and retailers can have, we will help the retailer be protected against it. Because if they're protected against it, right, they can immediately turn it back into better service so they're good consumers. And we, need, we understand that we need to evolve, right? Every time we raised a funding round, we invested most of that money into engineering and research to make sure our system is better tomorrow than it is today and not, hey, we capitalize on this, let's take milk it for the margins, go public, and, and then what? Right. It's right. A, it has to be built as a sustainable long-term business. That's at least my perspective. That makes a lot of sense. Michael, thanks. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Ford, on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. You'll also see video from more of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox, or go to LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter and search for John Fort and follow me. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And, as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, package-less and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.